Our second reading comes from the prophet Haggai. Yes, there is, in fact, a prophet Haggai uh, located in the so-called 12 minor prophets at the end of the Hebrew Bible Old Testament. And our reading this morning comes from Haggai chapter 2, beginning with the first verse. In the second year of King Darius, in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, The word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, son of Sheatiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you that saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Is it not in your sight as nothing? Yet now take courage, O Zerubbabel, says the Lord, Take courage, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Take courage, all you people of the land, says the Lord. Work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts, according to the promise that I made you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit abides among you. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once again in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all the nations, so that the treasure of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house with splendor, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The latter splendor of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give prosperity, says the Lord of hosts. Here ends our second reading. Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, I had the great privilege of beginning my ministry career after seminary at the Memorial Church at Harvard University under the tutelage of the Reverend Peter J. Gomes. Peter Gomes was someone who was very much a legend in his own time and who had been the head minister uh, at Harvard for some 40 years, what they call there the plumber professor of Christian morals and Pusey minister in the Memorial Church. And Peter was someone who, when he arrived at Harvard, uh, had made a point to sit at the feet of those who had been around the university for, for a long time, for many decades. And back then, there were a lot more professors who had been around for a long time, and Peter listened to them and collected their stories. And I remember then sitting at Peter's feet, and hearing some of these old stories of Harvard, and hear him lament how things had changed. Hear him lament how the general feel and culture of the place had become much more institutional and less personal. About how there seemed to be less interaction, free casual interaction between teachers and students. About how so much of Harvard was focused on money and fundraising, much more so than it had been 40 years before, And of course, there was the dramatic increase in bureaucracy and administration around Harvard. When Peter started back in the early 1970s, there was one dean, and that was the dean of Harvard College. And by the time it was the early 2000s, there were deans as far as you could see, assistant deans and associate deans and deans of this and that. And as Peter liked to point out, these these people always insisted on presenting themselves as dean so-and-so or dean so-and-so, and so so Peter would derisively refer to them as the deanlets. (laughs) 
But again, he was touching on that thing of you know, what had been lost within the institution. And I'm sure many of you can point to similar things in whatever field that you're in or spent your career in. Let's say primary and secondary education. How much has that changed in the last 30 or 40 years? How much more are legal issues you know, present and how, how are classrooms changed? Some things perhaps are the better, but I imagine many of you who have been in the field for a long time might say that stuff has been lost. Or let's say you work in a major multinational corporation. Is the feel of the corporation different today than it was, say, when you started your career back in the day? How have things shifted? I was born in 1979, which means I am in the very end of so-called Generation X. So you've got the baby boom generation, you've got Generation X, then you've got the baby boom boom, the so-called millennials. (laughs) And I'm at the very end of the Generation Xers. And I think I, I very much consider myself a Generation Xer in part because of the way in which I was raised. So when I was a kid, those were still back in the days of free play. So when I got home from elementary school, we just... My siblings and I just sort of went out in the neighborhood, and my parents didn't much care where we went or what we did, as long as we were back in time for dinner. And I remember, again, when we had daylight savings, one of the things I remember so clearly from, as a kid is that when daylight savings came up in the Boston area, that meant it got dark around 4.45 in the afternoon, and so all of a sudden, we had to be back at the house before it got dark, and you know, we would get in trouble if we would get back after that. But again, what we were doing in Carisbrook Reservation in the woods, building forts or whatever else, my parents just let us do our own thing. And yet when you look at even just five years after I was born, things had already begun to change. And kids in elementary school, middle school, and high school became increasingly programmed and organized and uh, put into all sorts of different activities. It's incredible to see the, the, the changes in what it means to grow up today versus when I was a kid. And I'm sure many of you can think about how many changes have been since you were a kid. And yeah, some of those for the better for sure, but there's still that, that lingering sense that maybe something's been lost. When I entered uh, church stuff, or at least first started considering the ministry in the early 2000s, I remember going to the Massachusetts Conference annual meetings. And at these annual meetings, Uh, The one thing that sticks out in my mind is how there was a constant wringing of hands, how things used to always be better in the past. (laughs) The mass conference um, by the early 2000s had seen over 25 years of declining uh, enrollment in the pews, or declining membership in the pews, uh, and with it declining sort of finances. Every year at the conference annual meeting, it was one more lament of how the sky was falling and things were better in the past, and now we had to reorganize, and oh... Just don't you remember those good old days? And I'm sure those of you who've been in First Congregational for many decades can, can point to similar things about how things have changed. I remember talking to one of you, lamenting the fact that when you first arrived at First Congregational, it was the members who did, for instance, all the mowing of the lawn. And now that's no longer the case. It seems as though people aren't pitching in anymore in the same way they once did. Or uh, so another one of you sort of lamenting the fact that Back in the day, there was this large, thriving youth group, and a large portion of those youth actually ended up going into the ministry. And nowadays, that's not the case. Or people who spent time working in the Pilgrim Festival and had so many memorable times working in the Pilgrim Festival and 
Now, at least for the time being, there is no pilgrim festival. Oh, how things have changed. Now, the prophet Haggai, according to scholars, was prophesying around the year 520 B.C. Now, those of you who are good Bible dorks or geeks, uh, or at least paid attention in Sunday school, uh, know that there was one big incident in the 6th century B.C. that shaped Israelite history. And that was the second sacking of Jerusalem in the year 586 B.C. Uh, That's when the Babylonian Empire sacked Jerusalem and took the elites from Jerusalem into Babylon that started the so-called Babylonian captivity. This is where we see in Psalm 137, uh, there, you know, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat and there we wept when we remembered Zion. It's this great lament from being in the exile. And then the Babylonian Empire itself was conquered by the Persian Empire in the late 530s BC, and Cyrus the Great, the king of Persia, let the Israelites go home. So there was this restoration uh, in the late 530s, and our text for today takes place about 15 to 20 years after that return to Jerusalem. And the setting is that here you have the Israelites return, and life has not been easy coming back. They've had to rebuild everything. There are Clearly, differences of those who were left behind and those who came back and how society would be structured. And after about 15 years, there was a move to rebuild the temple. This is the Temple of Solomon. And now they're trying to rebuild the Temple of Solomon. And at this point, they're just laying down the foundations. And here you have Haggai getting up, and he can sense the feeling of the people. He senses what's going through their minds. And he says, look what he says. Who is left among you that saw this house, that is the temple, in its former glory? And how does it look to you now? Is it not in your sight as nothing? Here Haggai names what's on everyone's hearts there as they're standing around the Temple Mount in Jerusalem looking at these pathetic foundations and thinking back to how great things had been in the past. Oh, things had been better back then and look at what we have now. And yet Haggai goes on and says, take courage, work, The Lord is with you. Keep rebuilding the temple. Keep building it up. And then makes this great prophecy that don't worry, things in the future are going to be even better than they were in the past. You just wait. You just wait. There's going to be gold and silver from all over. This temple is going to be fantastic. People are going to think that Solomon's temple was nothing compared to the temple that we have here. You can almost feel the uplift in some of the people there as you're reading through this text. Don't you feel uplifted, inspired? Well, I... I imagine in my head there's this scene later on that night where Haggai's sitting around with his friends and family members and maybe they're having a couple glasses of wine or, you know, sort of earthenware chalices of wine as the case may be. And, and some of his friends lean in and say, well, Haggai, that speech was all well and good, but, uh, but do you really believe that? Do you really think that things are going to get better than what they are? Do you really think the temple is going to be more have more splendor than it had in the past? I mean, let's be honest. We're your friends. You can, you can tell us the truth. And I imagine Haggai sort of leaning forward and looking at his friends in the eyes and saying, yeah, but you're missing an important point. Things have changed. The Israelite cult before the exile, the religious culture before the exile, was based around the king. You're the king and his court prophets. You're the king and the king's temple. That's the way things worked. But something happened in the exile that was crucial to the development of Judaism later on, literally without which you did not have Judaism later on. During the exile was the time when the final form of the Torah got written down. 
All of a sudden, Judaism became, for the very first time, a religion of the book in the exile. And when they came back from the exile, they brought with them the Torah and these other prophets that were actually written down. And those who had been left behind had to get by without a temple for several decades. They had to find a new way of worshiping God. So when they came back, one thing you'll notice in the text, who's listed in the text next to the king, the chief priest, that position didn't even exist before the exile. It speaks to the changing nature of what happened. All of a sudden now in towns and villages around, you'll have synagogues, gatherings of people who are actually reading the text and discerning it for themselves. Will the temple that's being built be more glorious in your sense of thinking than, than Solomon's? Who knows and who cares? More importantly, things are different and they're going to be much better and broader and, more, and have bigger impact because things have changed. Now, undoubtedly, things in churches have changed. People now are busier than ever before. There is a reason why we don't ask all of you as the members to mow the lawns every week. Because it makes a lot more sense to have someone else come in with larger machines who can mow the lawns much more efficiently. And it just makes a lot more sense and respects all of your time. The reality is, as I said earlier, our teenagers are busier now than ever before. There's a reason why churches, not just this church, but church all, churches all across the country have hard times with youth groups. Because there's just not the time for youth to spend in churches like it was back in the 1950s. Those of you who grew up back in the day, think about it. Your churches were the center of civic life. My dad, when he grew up, all of the activities that he was involved in as a kid, whether it be sports activities or other things, all revolved around the life in the church. That's just plain not the case anymore. And we have to acknowledge that. You know, there's a reason why we don't have the Pilgrim Festival right now. Part of it is a general ambivalence with our legacy of the pilgrims. Is that the way we want to have uh, our identity be labeled? Is that, is that the primary sort of marker of our identities that we want, the heritage of the pilgrims? There's some ambiguity there that we have to work out that hopefully in this anniversary year we'll be working out. But there's a reason why these things change. Here's not to look at the past, but see what's changed and what's pointing to the future. For churches for a while, one of the big things was size, economies of scale. And this is something where particularly more conservative churches were great about, you know, taking advantage of economies of scale. So if you have a big church, you can share uh, budgetary resources across a large number of people. Therefore, you can have a preaching specialist, all right? So you can have better preaching than big churches because if, if that's the only person's job, they're selected just because of the person's ability to preach, and you have the entire week to prepare your sermon, that sermon's going to be pretty darn good. Whereas in a church that's the size of FCC, uh, the minister's pulled in more directions. <laughs> you know, similarly, you have a youth person that's just focused on youth and special training for youth and a critical mass of youth. You can have musicians that are more highly paid. You can have fancy light people doing light shows and things in churches. That's only possible on a megachurch scale. Right? And so for a while, church attendance and the way of churches were going were able to be stemmed by economies of scale. That has changed. We are entering a new era. The Southern Baptist Convention has been losing members every year for the last 15 years. Moreover, what's one of the disadvantages of megachurches? There are a lot of advantages. What's one of the disadvantages? You build up this big edifice and this big church and this big system... And then you've got to maintain it. It's all about butts in the pews. You go into a big church, and you're not likely to find very many challenging sermons in general. I don't mean to totally generalize, but you know, in general, 
you're going to find a lot of pressure to keep butts in the pews because you've got to keep this whole edifice going. That becomes an issue. Nowadays, a lot of the, especially more conservative churches that tend to be, that tend to predominate in megachurch roles are running into theological issues. Why? Because younger people actually do have LGBT friends and colleagues and family members, and they're not comfortable with the churches being against them, or they actually want to integrate science and faith. There are all these different issues that are coming up that are putting major tensions on these churches. And the question is, is there any hope for a new model as things change? A new splendor that's awaited. Two years ago, there was this, or last year, actually, there was this Pew survey that I was reading that said, in spite of the decline in religious attendance, in spite of it, 90% of Americans believe in a higher power. Imagine that, 90%. Even more remarkable, of those who consider themselves the nuns, that is, those people who don't attend church, a shocking 72% still believe in a higher power. 72% of people who don't go to church and don't have religious, you know, any sort of religious affiliation, 72% still believe in a higher power. Now, when they asked, do you believe in the God of the Bible? And they didn't define that. They just said, do you believe in the God of the Bible? Those numbers dropped, dropped by 30 plus points. What that says to me is there is still a crying need for a place where people can wrestle with what it means to believe in God and what that looks like. If 72% of people who don't go to church still believe in a higher power, there is very much a desire and a need to wrestle with these issues. If only we could have a place where people could do that. Honestly, with integrity not being overly hamstrung by orthodoxies of the past, but being open to new ideas. Imagine if a place like that existed. Or again, today, one thing that's great about the youth today is the culture of altruism and service that's very much in our youth culture. You see it in the millennial generation and the generation Z after the millennials. They have been reared in a church where activities are big, in particular, giving back to the community. And so there's this culture and ethos of service that's in, that's in American culture, and people are looking as they get older to be able to put that to, to work and to use. If only there's a place you could come and be connected to service organizations and have a place to serve. You know, and again, there are lots of problems in society today, and people want to be able to engage with these problems and fix them. If only there were a place you could come and actually talk about justice. If only there were a place you could come and and connect yourself to something higher, something bigger, to give yourself meaning and purpose, to think about how you leave a legacy and what that actually might mean. To sing together, to pray together, if only these places existed. So... The challenge for us, the challenge for me, the challenge for all of us, this is collective, is how do we live into this in the 21st century? I do believe firmly, and I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing unless I did believe firmly, that there is a very real future and a bright future for churches. I stand with Haggai in this prophecy. I think it's true. I think a greater splendor does await us. But the key, and this is one of the things that I need your help with, is to figure out what that actually looks like in a practical level. Now, this upcoming Saturday, November 16th at 10 a.m., the council and the staff are going to get together over in room four to talk about what we need to do in the year ahead. And I've asked, I've really pushed this meeting to happen because I want us to be really honest what works well at FCC? Obviously, there are a lot of things that work well at FCC. You, you, will, you all would not be taking time out of your busy schedules to come here on Sunday morning and volunteer all the time you have and donate the money you do and get involved the way you do unless something brought you here. We must be doing certain things right. 
What are those things? We get to talk about that on Saturday. What are the things we don't do well? This past year, one of the metrics that we had to sort of measure our success is, you know, average weekly worship attendance. Is that, are, are these the right metrics we should be using? I don't know. One of the things that concerns me as your pastor is whether we have too many activities going on and we burn people out. If the whole purpose of church is to come here and to live into an abundant life that Jesus promises us, if that's what we're, if that's what we're all about, you should be leaving church feeling as though you're, you're enriched and you're living this abundant life. If that, are we doing it? And if not, how can we do it better? Where are the gaps? What are we capable of filling in the gaps? And we in the leadership, again, this is a congregational church, we need your input to figure out how we should do things. And this Saturday is a chance to give that input. Now, in 1582, Robert Brown wrote a treatise on on Reformation without tarrying for any. It was this clarion call for congregational polity written back in 1582. And what you have to remember is how radical this was in 1582. Church for people in the 16th century meant parish boundaries. Oh, which church you went to? Oh, it would depend on where, where your house was. Uh, a church was a building. It was a structure. It was a hierarchy. It was bishops. It was priests. And here's Robert Brown arguing, no, that's not church. Church is actually a gathering of people. It is a congregation that is bound together by a covenant. That's what makes church. This was so threatening to the establishment that actually those who were Congregationalists were either exiled from England or even killed in the late 1500s. That shows how radical this notion of Congregational polity was. And yet, you look at the United States today and the vitality of religion in the United States. What do you see? All the Congregational churches, all the Unitarian churches, all the Disciples of Christ churches, all the Baptist churches, all the non-denominational churches, Pentecostal churches, they're all, they all have congregational polity. That is the norm. Not only that, I would argue those churches, especially those Protestant churches that don't have congregational polity, are still driven by the ethos of congregational polity, where the energy and the vitality comes from people gathered together making things happen. Here was this radical notion in the 16th century of congregationalism, that ended up forever changing the way churches functioned and giving them new life. What does that look like today? What does a Robert Brown look like today? I am excited about the the, the splendor that awaits us. I stand with Haggai in this. But I need your help in trying to figure out what it is. I hope you're as excited about the future as I am.